church. How are you? So glad to see you here this morning to worship. Welcome if you're worshiping with us online. So glad you are here as we continue in our teaching series this Lent. All right, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our kids now for Revolution Kids. If y'all are here, looks like they already went upstairs, huh? They are pumped. They're excited. They're ready to go. <laughs> That's good today. <laughs> That's good. Okay, so I have a question. Have you all um, been to um, the new place in Middletown, Crumble Cookie? It's right there by with the Bunt Cake Place. Yeah. Man, went there a few weeks ago. It's just like this new bakery that only sells cookies and ice cream, I guess. Discovered that. You know, just give me a minute. <laughs> I went to, I, you could order online, pick up the mobile order, and it's like, you know, I already have all my credit card information there, so it's just like, click, what's money? You know, cookies on demand, here we go. So I drove my girl Pearl to pick up my curbside order, and it was just, it was wild. It was a zoo. You couldn't find a place to park. People were parking illegally. There was a line that snaked out the front door. I mean, and I knew because I've had them before, but this was a particular day. I really wanted this pink box of beautiful, delightful, wonderful crumble cookies. I mean, they had workers that were running you know, to and from, like, you know, inside to the curb and just, like, running, running nonstop trying to get these curbside orders. People snaked out the door to make an order or pick up an order. It was just incredible. These aren't just any cookies. I need you to know that. <laughs> these are cookies that, like, they're, they're practically as big as your face, right? They have a variety of flavors. They're new every day, available until they sell out, and sell out they do. Few, though, are probably as good as just their classic chocolate chip. They're like half an inch. Well, wait, wait a minute. This pink, wonderful, delightful box of crumble cookies. This, this showed up on my doorstep. I, I, uh, I credit one of you all for getting me hooked on these. Megan Farquhar. That may have showed up on my doorstep when I was on maternity leave with this box of gorgeous, delightful cookies. Nothing is quite as good as the chocolate chip one, though. Yeah, so... So yesterday, yesterday I picked this up and they're still warm. It's one of those, I mean, half an inch, look how thick that is. Half an inch thick. This one's actually not as big as they usually are, but like as big as your face. And when you pull it apart, like it would just like the melted goodness. Oh, man, right in the front. It's not fair. Oh, man. It's just so good. This warm, it's just like. I mean, can, can anyone guess what our sin is this morning? Vance, what is it? It's gluttony. Envy. Oh. That would only be if I took a bite. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Envy is next week. Don't worry. I mean, process of elimination. That's the only one left. So gluttony this morning and lust. Gluttony and lust. So this is a good point uh, to pause, especially if you're listening at home or later in the week on our podcast. If you have young ears around you, there is going to be some more adult content in the second half of this teaching when we talk about lust, gluttony and lust, two of the sort of sins of flesh that are often sort of considered like cousins because they deal with the body and desire and 
other things like that. So mom, if you're listening, maybe don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Right, so you're, you know, so now for those of you who haven't been following along for the past couple weeks, who are, or even if you're new here this morning, you're new online, and you're going, what in the world? Gluttony and lust, what kind of church is this? Starting out right out of the gate. Or, as my husband pointed out, no, the question they're going to be asking is, did you bring enough for all of us to share? (laughs) And I did not. (laughs) Because it's the temptation is the illustration, right? It'll be distracting to me, so I'm just going to put these back down, <laughs> just inside there, because I can smell them from here. I can smell them. You can, oh, yeah, I'll sell them. After the service, they only touched one. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Logan ate one, too. <laughs> so there's another one. So if you haven't been following along, in the season of Lent, we've been taking a look at the historic seven deadly sins considered the vices uh, looking at sort of the character defects, the habits, the, the mishaps sort of underneath the surface actions that we like to classify and call out sin, usually in other people, we've been taking a look again at these historic vices. I've been challenging you and inviting you each week to ask some questions of self-examination. To say, what is it within my own heart where I might be tripped up? When I'm trying to run after Christ, what is the sin that that so easily entangles me on my pursuit of Christ? So I've been challenging you to to create that space in your life, to ask some of those questions so that the sins, those those things that trip us up can can be changed or healed within our own hearts so that it may be identified, confessed, forgiven, redeemed. Because what is not confessed can't be healed, right? So we've been sort of going through this journey together, and we've been talking about sin, yes, but not as, not as a way to shame or guilt you or to make you feel awful or uncomfortable, although moments of this morning might. <laughs> Maybe me. <laughs> Maybe me mostly. But the whole reason to talk about this is to help spur us on on our journey of sanctification, That's the goal. That's the gift of Lent that invites us into a set-aside season of of penance and reflection and worship and confession. It's supposed to spur us on to our sanctification. That is to change. We believe that we can change in this life to be made holy, to become more like Christ. That's been the goal. That's been the goal. And that's important to remember because our two vices this morning today come packed and loaded with a whole lot of shame. In a world, especially our culture today, that seems obsessed with food and sex, us church folk can carry around a lot of judgment and shame on these two as well. You may have even heard or you were taught at some point in your life that lust was the chief of all sins. It was the worst of all. I'm here to say it's not true, right? Sin is sin is sin. We've been taking a look at each of these. We misunderstand, we overemphasize, we judge, we shame, and we have failed to be an obedient church. This isn't just us. I'm talking about, you know, American church, church as a whole, universal church. We have failed to be obedient by how we have taught on or failed to teach on both of these vices. 
I've said throughout most of this series, I'm like, just don't know what to do with lust. Where do I put it? Where do I hide it? Can I just talk about gluttony today and then sit down? Because there's so much shame associated. There's so much misteaching. And honestly, there's not, it can't be an exhaustive lesson today. It can't, we can't, we can't touch on it all or, or, or really cover all that is to, to separate out when it comes to these good gifts that God has given us. So these are, they're two vices thought of today, considered as cousins because they are rated, related to the body, to desire and satisfaction, referred to as the sins of the flesh maybe. And what's important though is that they refer to two pleasures of life that start out as good gifts from God. They start out as good gifts from God, how we were created to be and to live. Food, we have to eat to live. It's necessary for survival. It's how we were made and created. Food to nourish and sustain us. And also the gift of sexuality. That in the confines of a covenanted, committed relationship, it leads to connection and intimacy and belonging and understanding. Gifts from God. We were created as sexual beings. What does that mean? And how can we rightly order our love, our love of God, and our love of neighbor when it comes to these two good gifts that start as good, but as Bishop Willimon has said, as sin enters in, it's the desire for them that runs us out of control. That's when they become the vice. Our good desire for them, corrupted by sin, then runs and grows out of control. Desire is a good, God-given thing, but desire misdirected, misused, leads to sin. 1 Corinthians 6 says this. This is Paul. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then on later in that same passage, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. That's the point of lust and gluttony. That's the point of these vices, right? When the good gifts from God dominates every aspect of our life, it grows out of control, the desire growing out of control. In relation to gluttony, uh, Philip Philippians, in Philippians, Paul says this. It describes it as those who have allowed their God to be their belly. Therefore, in verse 19, so their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So this morning, the basic thing I'm going to do is, is give a basic definition of each of these vices, leave you with a couple of questions for self-evaluation and examination throughout the week, and in hopes, right, that, you know, as it's been every week, that this will lead us closer to the cross and our own need, our own deep need for divine grace. What can't be addressed and then confessed can't be healed. 
right? If we believe change can happen in our lives, if we believe that we can become more and more like Christ. So that's sort of the the aim here this morning. All right, so first we're going to talk about gluttony. Because today I'm being courageous, but not too courageous. So we're going to start with gluttony. How does that basic habit of eating become a deadly sin? One of the seven deadly sins. Like I said, we have to eat to live. This is how we were created. And in fact, throughout scripture, we see Jesus. I mean, he eats a lot. Food seems to be an important part of his life. So much so with how often he eats and who he eats with that some people accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. (laughs) Eating with sinners, feasting with friends. He describes the kingdom of God as a great banquet or a wedding feast. And I tell you, this is when I can get on board with the kingdom of God. When we think of it as a big party with decadent, wonderful food where everybody has enough. Y'all have heard me say that before. There's so many teachings in the New Testament that are concerned about Jew and Gentile believers eating together, making sure food can be clean for all people so that they can, they can have table fellowship. This is an integral part of Christian community. Jesus revealed who he was to the disciples and therefore the cosmos and the breaking of bread. And we still use that today as our symbol, remembering his last supper and the sacrifice that Christ made for us, celebrating, as it were, that little feast every, every week at Holy Communion. It's an important part for community. It's an important part of our life together, of, of living and surviving. And as scripture also says, there is a time for everything, for feasting and for fasting. So when does it become sinful? When does it become out of control? Where gluttony is is actually not about just how much you eat, but about how much pleasure you take in eating and why. You know, similar to last week, when I asked you to think of like the image of greed and what comes to mind, I I think there's an image that we might conjure in our head when it comes to gluttony and what maybe a gluttonous person might look like or how they might behave, right? It actually doesn't really have anything to do with, we might talk about, you know, our, our fast food culture, our, 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 foodie, our, our foodie culture, or, you know, unhealthy habits or judgments that we like to make about, about BMI or ob- rising obesity rates. And, and all that really does is create us into a position of judgment and assuming of what's healthy and what's not. When we all know that someone of my stature can be just as unhealthy and what she eats and how little she exercises, and how quickly she goes through Chick-fil-A drive-thru, a lot, right? Like I, right, so sort of the, so much shame associated with gluttony if you stop and you think about it as well, because you think of it and you have a particular body type in mind, or a particular, and then, you know, then associations of like, therefore unhealthy, or therefore lazy, or therefore don't care, exhibit A, <laughs> doesn't matter, about, it's not about how much you eat, but about how much pleasure you take in eating and why. It's the excessive desire for and the enjoyment of food. Like I knew going into the teaching on seven that gluttony was one for me. So y'all know I love food. Y'all know I love grumble cookies. Seeking pleasure and eating food to the point it dominates your thoughts, your schedule, your lives, where it becomes all about your own enjoyment 
So historically, by Gregory the Great in the Middle Ages, there were thought to be five kinds of gluttony. Isn't that fun? We're in for a treat. You're like, I don't struggle with this, Rachel. Let's see. Five types. <laughs> Let's see. Five types of gluttony, eating too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too ravenously, and too excessively. Don't worry. In our modern understanding, too fastidiously or daintily would understand it to be this way, sort of excessively particular, critical, or demanding. The first two, the first two types of gluttony, it's all about, it has to do with what we eat. So becoming like particular and and incredibly picky, demanding, hard to please. Maybe you picture the person that you go out to dinner with and they send back the plate, like not just once, but like three or four times. Or like, I'm going to go back to the kitchen and I'm going to complain, right? Of like so concerned, overly concerned about what it is that you are eating and if it meets your demands for your own satisfaction, all about you. I'm not saying that's you. It could be you as someone laughs in the back. I'm not saying, I've never been to, I'm never, you know. It's all about the desire behind the experiences that drive uh, to secure pleasure for themselves, regardless of how others are put out or put off by their demands. Okay, the second one would be eating sort of extremely costly, too sumptuously, always eating very rich and luxurious foods or, or magnificent foods. Now, there's a you, okay, all, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The virtue here of what we're going for, of like that opposes each vice, the one here is moderation. Okay, so it's, it's the wisdom literature that says there's a time for everything under the sun. There's a time for feasting and a time for fasting. When I think of this type of gluttony, I think of Matt and I celebrating our anniversary and going to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Man, that was a time for feasting. It was our wedding anniversary. That was more than I'd ever spent on a steak before in my life. It was pre-pandemic. And like we sat in public together and, and we had, hadn't been out on a date in a long time, right? And it was good drink and good food and good, but we don't eat like that every week, right? That's luxurious. That's extremely costly. The third one would be too hastily or just too quickly, okay, you don't need to point fingers, right? But like the shoveling in, I'll be honest with kids, you just got to go, right? You, you just, you got to go. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't eat now, you don't eat. And the kids always need something, right? So the first two had to do with what we eat. These last three types of gluttony have to do with how we eat, how we eat. So this one is eating too quickly, shoveling in another bite, or it's the fast food culture, right, of sort of just go through, um, feed everybody, get on to the next activity because we're so overstretched, overreached, overburdened, overtaxed. We don't even have time to sit down and sort of have a family meal together. Eating too much excessively. It's, It's one of the five, but it's not the only one. Eating excessively or overeating. And then lastly, too greedily or too ravenously. That's eating very eagerly with little concern for those around you and if they have enough. Eating like an animal, only concerned about yourself and getting your own needs met, your own satisfaction with little concern if those around you have enough. A couple of you already know this story, but several weeks ago, uh, Micah and Daryl and I were here in the office and Daryl so graciously offered to order pizza for us for lunch. And he got it from Jet's. And it was one of those eight corner pieces, you know, where like everybody gets one of those really lovely. So, okay, Daryl, Micah, and I brought it to my office. 
man, I was excited, <laughs> right? Like, I'm pumped. And we get to, we get to eating, and I'm just shoveling. <laughs> I'm just going. And before I realize it, I have eaten more pizza than Daryl, and there's not enough left for Daryl. That is real. That happened. But we joke about it now. He's the one that decided it was a good idea to try and feed two mothers who were still nursing their children. So I don't, that was, Micah and I were like, man, you knew it. You knew what you were getting in. But i very embarrassed about that. We joke about it now as a way to try and make me feel better. But I had no concern at all about Daryl, the one who had purchased the pizza. And if he had had enough to eat for lunch, I was going for it. <laughs> we can, it's okay. We can still make fun. I was very embarrassed in this moment. I'm confessing that gluttony is a struggle for me. And this connection to greed, right? In this, uh, Bishop Williman says this, gluttony is more than self-indulgence. It may also be a way of being blind to the needs of others in a world where millions go hungry. Being blind to the needs of others in a world where millions go hungry. It's in case, all these, all five cases of gluttony, what we consume and how we consume gives us important clues about why we are eating. Examining our hearts for gluttony demands asking not whether we are fat or thin, polite or impolite, high or lowbrow in our tastes, but whether we are eating to satisfy our own wants in a way that elevates our satisfaction above other good things. It becomes all about you, all about your satisfaction, all about the food. So your questions for self-reflection this week. Why am I eating? What hunger am I trying to satisfy? It's Frederick Buchner who says this, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. Yeah, that one hurt me this week. The first part of that crumble cookie story is that it happened when we were all locked down in the house with COVID. Logan was climbing the walls. I had to get out. I needed a break. I loaded the baby up in the car because Matt and I like to divide and conquer man-to-man defense, and I said, I'll take the easy one. I'm going to go for a drive in my girl Pearl. Got to get out of this place. I drove through the park. It was after that ice storm down there at Beckley Creek. You sit at the top of the hill, and, like, it just looked like all of the trees were, like, glass, right, like covered in glass. The sun was setting. It, I, I rolled down the windows. The sort of frigid, cool air came into the car. I took a deep breath. It could have been a lovely, spiritual, wonderful moment. And what did I think in that moment? You know what would make this even better? <laughs> a box of crumble cookies. <laughs> I, this is not even a lie, y'all. And so sitting there at Beckley Creek Park, I get on my phone, I order a mobile app ready for pickup in seven minutes. And on the way home, it was good. I felt better that night, right? It took the edge off of, of needing some stress, of needing to get out of the sugar rush of, man, this is good. Didn't eat the whole thing, but, you know, I, I still, in that moment, I chose the, the easy pleasure, the easy delight. Could justify it by saying I was sharing it with my kid, you know, but, man, I picked out all my favorites. <laughs> 
Why am I eating? What hunger am I trying to satisfy? Is there something else going on in your life that you're trying to overcompensate for, that you're trying to take the edge off of? The author Rebecca DeYoung says this, are you relying on the pleasure of food to compensate for something else? And she says in her own experience, I was behaving toward food like a single-minded, starving animal because I had starved my life of other things that kept me fully human. Friendship, identity, belonging, meaning. When we have no margin in our lives, no, no room for rest or relaxation or joy in an overstressed life, the quick fix and pick me up, the drive through life, it works for a time. But we will always go hungry again. So what are you actually hungering for? What's going on underneath the surface? Are you celebrating? Are you feasting the good benefits in life of friendship and family? Or are you overcompensating for something else? And then the second question, the really the only way we can answer the first is by experimenting with fasting. Experiment with fasting. Fasting reveals the things that control us, say Richard Foster. Maybe it's a fast from sweets, from caffeine, from alcohol, from meat, from fast food, from desserts, from crumble cookies that allows yourself to create space and margin in your life to ask, what's going on? Is a fast easy for me to do? How dominated are you by the pleasure of consuming one of these things? Some, some of us experiment with that in, in Lent, creating room in our lives to ask some of these deeper questions of what am I attached to? If it's the goodness of the food and the joy of the Lord in creation, that's one thing. But if there's another whole sort of full range of emotional eating going on, that might not be revealed unless you disrupt your habits and your patterns with a fast. You might not get to what's going on underneath unless you say, let's experiment with fasting. All right, how are we doing? You okay? Yeah. Take a deep breath. Let's go. Are you ready? <laughs> this is Rachel's self-talk. Ready? Deep breath. Advice number two is lust. Now, when we think of lust, you might hear people refer to it as a lust for other things other than a sort of over-excessive sexual desire. You might hear of it as a lust for power, a lust for food, right? That's really gluttony, right? Ch chuckles already. <laughs> um, over a lust for money, a lust, uh, a lust for just more in your life. But if we're going to sort of parse out what it is that all of these different vices are, I mean, still pride is the root of all of these things and over concern about yourself and your own well-being and satisfaction that permeates both of these vices as well. But even though lust can be used in sort of other non-sexual ways that really can be understood in anger and gluttony and pride and, and envy, we'll get to that next week. And so today, for all of our benefit, we're going to use the basic definition of lust that the earliest sort of desert fathers and their tradition saw it, the ones who kind of came up with these rules and vices and habits it's the thought of lust as sexual temptation or disordered desire. Not just excessive, but really disordered desire. And it's not just having these attractions or these thoughts or feelings. Again, it's a good gift that God gave to us to be enjoyed and experienced within a covenanted relationship. But it's when these desires and longings take over and dominate our lives. Right? 
The famous sort of teaching of Jesus on this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is not a parable, friends. Jesus is serious about our thoughts and our actions. And it's not just an initial thought of attraction or desire, but it's dwelling on it. It's giving into that. It's acting out of that in other unhealthy actions to someone or with someone who is not available to you sexually at the time, okay? Right, it's dwelling, it's, it's not just actions, but it's also our thoughts. Jesus is pretty serious about this because as we said again in our scripture, we want nothing to dominate or take over our lives. Only Jesus Christ should be Lord of our lives. It's these good gifts that are given to us to be experienced in our humanity, but when they grow out of control, they take over And we try to fulfill these desires and these longings in ways that nothing really can, right? We will always be left feeling empty, whether it's gluttony or lust. We will always grow hungry and thirsty again, right? Unless it's from Jesus, the fount of living water. Jesus is serious about this. So here's just sort of uh, briefly the problems with lust. We already know this. We already know this to be true. What are the problems with lust? Well, it reduces this God-given desire down to only individual gratification, all about the self, your own thoughts, your own desires, and therefore separates this gift from love's familiarity and warmth and vulnerability and intimacy. It alienates people when it's supposed to be bringing people together, when people are supposed to be drawn together. And how does this work? The only way lust works is because it dehumanizes the other. It objectifies them. It, seems, it sees them only as an, an object for your own satisfaction and fulfillment. The only way that works is because it dehumanizes them. So you might think, ah, you know, come on, like some dirty thoughts or jokes or like, you know, oh, this is like what happens in private. It doesn't hurt anybody, right? You can almost sort of hear the argument for that. Except that it does. The second problem with lust is that, oh, I didn't give you that slide. The second problem is that it leads to harm. And unfortunately, sometimes even violence. We are all probably familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. David, who gave in to his lustful desires for Bathsheba, a wife of another man, and took her as his wife, who actually just slept with her. A, a, wife that, another, a wife of another man that was not available to him, except that he was king. Talk about power dynamics. And to refuse this, she would have been punished by death, most likely. He played out of, you know, acted upon his lustful desires, and it led to sexual assault, an unplanned pregnancy, the killing of her husband, Uriah, when David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. He tries to bring him home to cover it up, bring him home from war, even get him drunk. Maybe then he'll go home and be with his wife and no one will know. 
But out of his honor and integrity and commitment to his colleagues that he was, they were still on the battlefield, he doesn't do it. He doesn't go home. And so then David sends him to the front lines of the war and has him killed, killed in action. That led to a rupture in God's relationship with David. And then even ultimately, he suffered the loss of his son born to Bathsheba. David's lust created great harm. It broke trust. It undercut loyalties. It damaged relationships at all levels. And before you think that this is just like an extreme example, they're like, come on, this doesn't really, that kind of stuff to that level, like just our little innocent lust, it doesn't happen today. We can say a million more examples today of how living out of lustful desires and personal satisfaction only has led to a whole host of problems. And maybe we're all too quick to forget it was just the one-year anniversary of the man named Robert Long who went on a rampage in Atlanta last March, shot up three different spas around the city and killed eight women, six of whom were of Asian descent. Did you all remember and know why he said that he did that? The suspect told the police that he had a sexual addiction and had carried out the shootings at the massage parlors to eliminate his temptation. He also said that he had frequented massage parlors in the past and launched the attacks as a form of vengeance. Dehumanizing, objectifying, othering, all about his own own desire and passion had grown to the point of an addiction that caused great harm. In an article about the event, it says, the cultural undercurrent of pornography has also had a profoundly negative influence on the modern perception of sex and race. Long himself claims that his addiction to pornography, that's Robert Long, he claimed that his addiction to pornography was partly what motivated his terrible crime. Violence against women in pornography is ubiquitous, targeting women of all races. That's not even to touch on the industry that objectifies women, that celebrates violence against women, that doesn't honor consent. I mean, there's a whole host of things that we could point to today of how lust and desire that grows out of control leads to harm and violence. And this is part of the sex-crazed world that we live in, that it's super easy, like I'm resisting the temptation to just launch into a list of all of these other things that are bad, right? To sort of, you know, detach it from our own discomfort right now. But the whole point of these vices is to look into the mirror and say, Lord, where is it in my own heart that I have misguided or misdirected desire, Where is it that I am tripping up? Search me, O God, and know my heart and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's our prayer from the Psalms that was supposed to guide this series. And so we need to take a moment, take a beat, and ask ourselves some important questions. These vices take our attachment to good things, good God-given gifts, and turn them into excess, distorting both us and the objects of our desire. It's not innocent. It's distorting both us and the other person. 
talking about the habits of some of these thoughts and practices, sharing this from, uh, from the book of Glittery Vices by Rebecca DeYoung. We talk about the habits of living into sort of the single-mindedly pursue something for the pleasure we can get from it. She says this, the more that we do it, the less likely we are able to find our pleasure satisfied. Sexual gratification gradually loses its flavor. What, what once felt intoxicating eventually becomes dull and boring, and it's pornography that classically illustrates this dynamic. She says it has an incredible escalation rate. Habitual viewers quickly increase their frequency of use to the point where it disrupts and dominates their lives. Meanwhile, the level of perversity and novelty required to peak interest quickly spins beyond the range of what, sh of what would shock even the more jaded adult, she says. What's important that I wanted us to hear there is that it, it, it mirrors patterns of addiction. Habitual use over time, just like gluttony, you need more and better in order to satisfy your desire of hunger and now here physical desire. And it can quickly get out of control. And it's not just pornography. It's, it's other things, other things that we might watch or, or listen to. We, we live in such a visual culture of, of social media and Instagram and swiping and looking that objectifies the other, sees them as an object of desire. And I'm warning you and warning myself leads to harm. Those are the two problems of lust. And how it harms ourselves is that it leaves us feeling empty, alone, unfulfilled, ranging from despair to depression to loneliness to shame, because again, it pulls apart, it separates the love and intim intimacy and emotional connection from simple pleasure and satisfaction. Instant gratification works once, but you will always grow hungry again. So then the last thought, some of these remedies as we're thinking about this is important. The last problem of lust is that it thrives in privacy and isolation. It thrives in privacy and isolation. And it looks best when we are starved for love, true love, good love, real love. When we are starved for these kind of emotional connections in our lives, as humans, you know we can't live or thrive without love. We, we will go to desperate lengths to have it or to escape from the pain of not having it. Lust feels easier in a world where love, intimacy, love and intimacy are risky, where they're hard and they're sometimes wounding. In a world where intimacy is really challenging, you've got to be vulnerable we are trying to find relationships of love and commitment and devotion. And I'm not just talking about sexually, but just in general, when we're, when we're craving good relationships and love, lust is easier to escape from the pain of not having things we desire. Lust thrives in privacy and isolation. And this is where the shame is wrapped up in all of this. We're motivated, especially as it follows patterns of addiction and lust, motivated to keep our struggles hidden from others, to hide our hearts, to not expose into light what needs to be confessed. And so this means that our remedies, lust remedies, require community, openness, and accountability. Community, openness, and accountability. This is Rebecca DeYoung. 
She says toward the end of this, sheer individual willpower will not work. You will not beat this vice of lust alone. It's vicious cycle copycats the dynamics of addiction. The remedies, she says, are community, openness, and accountability. The remedy is to develop good friendships. Good friendships where you can be vulnerable and acknowledge some of your struggles that might thrive in private and in isolation. So there's practical things, of course, you can do if it's something you struggle with on your computers or on your phones or, you know, other forms of accountability. We can use respectful language and keep jokes clean, she says. We can intentionally regulate the the movies and TV shows we watch because even if you don't say you watch, quote, porn all the time, there might be a lot of other things that, that you do watch that elicit to you these these images that, that can go off the rails pretty quickly, right? We can watch what we listen to, the video games that we play, the music, uh, our social media use, which we'll get to more later with Envy next week. But really, it's the communities that show us how to rely on the Spirit's power and faithfulness and hope. What we need is community. And the good news, among many other things, is that we have that built in right here with our house groups with our bands for accountability. I know some of you are in more like one-on-one, either with, you know, their men or with women for accountability to, to expose to light some of these sins that we like to keep secret and hidden. We have Celebrate Recovery here every Wednesday night where we came this last week and you heard someone stand up in front of here, right here in the pulpit and say, hi, my name is, and I struggle with, there's no shame here. There's no judgment here. There's only hope and healing. And that's open to everyone, regardless of what your habit or hang-up is, every single Wednesday night in this space. That's doing church. That's doing church and letting the light in. Developing good friendships that teach us how to respect each other, to offer appropriate physical affection, to appreciate and care for others without looking for something in return, to develop relationships of trust. The best remedy for lust is community and good friendships. Because when we have those, whether we have a sexual partner or not, we're married or not, our desires for love and identity and belonging, most of those, a lot of those, can be met in community of good friendships. So your question to leave you with this week, and then we're going to have some communion. Your question is this, how can my whole life, my thoughts, my life, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversations, my behavior, make me a person who is best prepared to give and receive love in relationship with others? In your self-examination, in the thoughts of your heart and in your life, asking ourselves, how can I grow more in love with God and more in love with my neighbor? to not give in to passions, to not dehumanize and harm my neighbor, but to have rightly ordered love with Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for who you are and that you have created us to enjoy some of the pleasures of life. And yet we know these pleasures are not the end all be all. And if we look to them to satisfy our deepest needs and longings, we will never be satisfied. As Augustine says, our hearts are restless until 
we find our rest in you. Lord, give us strength and courage this morning to break some of our unhealthy habits that leave us lonely and restless and anxious and depressed, that we may come to the fount of living water that never runs dry in you and in you alone. Would you give us courage this week to be vulnerable, to confess, to reach out for a friend if we need help, to show up to CR, to experience the freedom of knowing there is no shame here, there is only freedom, so that we might become more and more like you in our love, in our relationships, and in our community, so that we might enjoy the best of life that you have to offer us, and continue to love and serve our neighbor in all that we do. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.